Our next guest is neurodivergent consultant with a strong interest in autism. She has multiple degrees, is a published researcher and co-founder of Diagnostic and Therapeutic Services National Peak Centre. With 20 years experience, her mission is to empower and educate others to understand neurodifferences. Today we are talking about parenting neurodivergent children, supporting neurodivergent communities, and the role of play for neurodivergent children and adults. A big warm welcome to the worthy virtual studio, Christina Keeble. Thank you so much, Lucas. It's lovely to be here. I've been really excited about this chat and having you on board with your wealth of knowledge to share with our listeners. Um, it's something we're hearing more and more of, how do we support neurodivergent children, um, the services schools are offering. Um, in my own journey with my son going to school and going through NDIS assessment and all of those things and having that additional support for him as he starts school, it's all, it's all front of mind right now. Yeah. So this is um, a great time. And also talking to principals and directors of childcare centres and just being like, they're, they're kind of, I'm feeling they're a bit of a loss at the moment. It's like, what direction do we take now? it seems to be and I'd love your opinion on it could lead into our first question mm. uh, are neuro differences increasing or is it just a better understanding in recent times yeah that is that is a great question and, and a common one and it's so definitely we're seeing more diagnoses of neurodivergent um, children and adults, and particularly those who, um, like myself, who's a late diagnosed adult. I was diagnosed after my children, and it was going through the process with them that I realized, wait a minute, this is, you know, it, it, it's, I feel the same. Um, and it's really in a lot of hindsight. Now, saying that, the reason there's more um, diagnoses is that there is a much better understanding of. Um, what the spectrum of neurodivergencies look like. Um, you know, in my, when, in my growing up, in, in my era, um, in the 80s and 90s, you know, there wasn't the understanding of, you know, the full understanding of what the autism or ADHD spectrum looked like. And, and I have both those labels now. Um, back then, there wasn't a label that I fit under. And my challenges presented in a way that was socially acceptable. Um, it doesn't mean that the challenges weren't there. It was just that, according to the school, because I was um, academically gifted um, and I wasn't failing, um, I wasn't a behavior problem, um, according to the school, because I don't like that word in general, but in, in my era, um, you know, they, they, I was the quirky, nerdy, um, socially awkward kid. Uh, where, you know, nowadays we're recognizing that the struggle can, is still there, but it was very much internalized and very much was affecting mental health and, and whatnot. And it get, it's a very, like, I could talk all day about this, but, but essentially to answer your question, it's, it's um, we are seeing more um, accurate diagnoses, which I think is a really positive thing. And it is due to a broader understanding um, of challenges that those with neurodivergent brains face. Yeah, and we've, we've um, used the word uh, about 40 times since we started, <laughs> but um, just so we are clear on terms, so we're yep. all talking about the same thing, um, could you give your definition of neurodivergent? Yeah, definitely. Um, before that, though, I want to talk about neurodiversity. So neurodivergent stems from that concept, and neurodiversity just to put it as simple as I can, represents all brains within our species. All brains. Um, now, someone who is neurodivergent uh, is someone whose brain um, technically diverges from the majority. And so what it is, is the nowadays we're recognizing it as a natural variation of brains within our species. Um, so not that there's something wrong or deficit-based, but that there is a different processing or operating system, if you like, to how we experience the world with um, sensory information and other information coming in, how we process the information, and then how we respond to the information. And those who get these labels 
Um, they tend to include things such as autism, ADHD, all of the learning differences like dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, um, it, Tourette syndrome, um, and there's many more. That's not an exhaustive list, but basically it represents those individuals whose brains, when they come into this world, are wired differently. Mm. And uh, hence that... Um, when this comes up in conversation, so many people are like, oh, well, I think I've got a bit of that. I think I've got a bit of that. It is, and and it's it's such a you know I'm guilty of that before before I I was formally diagnosed, um, and prior to that I self identified for nearly two years, and I know a lot of um, um, neurodivergent um, adults and parents in particular who self identify because it's it's. It's a bit of a privilege to be able to afford a diagnosis as an adult there's no means to um, get support but I guess when when you look at it and there's a lot of talk about this within the you know adult neurodivergent community is that you know we can completely relate and understand or have characteristics similar to somebody else but the reality is not everybody is neurodivergent um, yeah. yeah and that you know I guess some of the, the the discussion around it involves, you know, if we say, oh, everybody is a little bit this, then it actually dismisses the challenges that come along with that. Um, and it is a it is a different operating system, but I totally understand the meaning behind that and, you know, that, that relating and understanding certain aspects of, of yeah. that. Mm. And um, so just to clarify, if yeah. we've got 100 people, a majority of that 100 people would be like a typical... Yep. Neurotypical, yeah. Yeah, neurotypical, and then whoever sits outside that would have that neurodivergence. Neurodivergence. Yeah, and and it is it is based around um, the the way that I explain it, and this has evolved over the years, but now in the in the era that we're in, I always explain it iPhone versus Android example when you look at phones. So both phones make phone calls, make texts, can download apps. Um, however. You need to use the right charger for the right phone, otherwise your phone's not going to charge, and you need to go to the right app store in order to download the apps. So basically it's a different processing system, and it's about how, you know, if you think about children, how they interpret and experience the world around them, including the sensory information, um, the verbal, the, you know, just all of all of the world coming in, it's experienced differently. Yeah. Do you think that, the, like, just in that scenario where people are, I'm a little bit of this, I'm a little mm-hmm. bit of that. That's, you think that's great evidence of the the dropping down of the stigma, the stigma being washed away around that identity because people are more willing to be like, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, I, and <laughs> I think opposed to like, oh that that in my era yes. in the 80s being diagnosed with ADD, uh, it was like, oh the ADD kid, yeah, yeah, no one wanted to be associated with that, and now people are like, yeah. And and I see it as a genuine, you know, a genuine um, attempt to kind of bridge that gap and and share like, no, I I understand where you're coming from, you know, so I do see that, that as a positive, I know, um, definitely, uh, I think one of the great things that I have seen in schools, um, and particularly one of the schools that my, my children have attended in the past was this great um, series of lessons around basically different brain types within their thing you know and the the without singling any child out the teacher had this beautiful bunch of videos and things describing you know what it's like to be autistic or ADHD and um, I heard so many beautiful stories of other kids in the classroom going oh that's like me too and so all the kids who did have the labels and knew of it spoke up and then other kids who didn't you know they were like oh yeah I, I must be it was just this beautiful you know um, acknowledgement and, and understanding of differences and yeah. also the focus was how do we be a good friend to each other when we have these differences which was lovely yeah um, there's language used in my daughter's classrooms around the rainbow brain yes. type of scenario which yep. is which is really lovely that they've really taken that on board and people are like oh I'm like that too and it's like lovely. it's that it's that camaraderie of yeah. difference opposed yeah. to it being like that definition is like liberating you and celebrating you opposed to defining you and pushing you down. 
Exactly. And that idea of like, okay, you know, little Sarah or little, you know, Seth, you know, maybe they're struggling with something, you know, and and they come alongside them as a friend and advocate for them and go, hey, you know, they're, you know, and and again, looking at that rainbow brain and, and where they and it's just a lovely, yeah, a really lovely positive way to, to highlight and connect children with their with their differences and celebrate and support, like you said. Yeah. Talk about, about um, supporting. Yep. I've got like this fantastic expert, and it would be a missed opportunity to leverage on that to answer my wife's question. <laughs> um, the question she asked me the other day was, um, from an ADD standpoint, like what goes on in your brain? Oh. <laughs> and I was like, so if you got a pinball machine, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah? okay. Um, but I was hoping you could. Uh, explain it um that neurotype a bit more clearer and define that yeah okay so again i can only give my perspective just like you you know so and i think for me the point the point that it really was highlighted was when i first started taking medication for adhd and that was at um just before i turned 38 years old and so i'd gone through you know my life thinking this is what everybody experiences I took the medication and my brain went into what I call a massive slowdown and all of I actually went to my husband and I said oh my gosh there's like nothing up there right now and he's like what do you mean and I'm like nothing's going in like there's nothing in my brain like there's just quiet like there's nothing going on and he's like yeah and I'm like is that what it's like I was like do you have periods of time where nothing is happening up there and he goes, yeah. And I'm like, so I didn't even know that people had space between thoughts or that there was quiet up there. So, um, and this, this phenomenon, I suppose, um, this big brain slowdown as my brain must have, you know, it habituated to the medication. I started in my, my, uh, what do you call it? The thinking and processing slowed right down that came back. Um, I've got my processing speed back and thinking and I have busyness up there again, Um, but it took about two months and it just really highlighted to me how busy my brain is. It's, there's never a moment of just quiet. There's always multiple thinking going on. Um, I've noticed when I'm feeling overloaded, either like sensory wise, or if I haven't taken my medication in particular, but also more stress, the more stressed I experience things like that, I get this fogginess and this inability to think clearly and make decisions clearly um, when, and that's when I usually know I've not taken my tablets. When I take them, I have this ability to, it feels clear, like the fog is lifted and I have this ability to multitask better (laughs) um certain things i'll never be good at is is cooking um and it hasn't it hasn't i'm still like the queen of burning everything um including chicken nuggets uh but there's just this constant flow of ideas and um yeah i guess that's that's how i experience it And, and when i get asked a question or if I'm doing something, there's always like, I've learned to just stop and let someone know, I'm just thinking, give me a minute. And I'm like looking at all the different angles all at the same time and trying to pick out so that, I guess that's kind of the best way. It's like a really yeah. busy road. <laughs> yeah, and, and from like a brain structure, mm. the science behind it, um, what's going on um, for people with that neurotype? Is it like a, a heightened, activation of a certain area is it the pathway of the brain that takes a detour what's going on up there look this is not my strongest suit so i'll do my best to answer so when it comes to the brain uh and adhd in particular what's happening there is it's a and and to be honest researchers aren't even 100 percent sure the way it all works and the way medication works but what my understanding is is that it's a lack of dopamine and the dopamine, it can either be underproduced or it's not hanging out around the brain long enough. And what's, what the different medications do, and they all work differently on the receptors and, and the reuptake part um, between um, uh, the communication side of the brain, is that it helps 
the dopamine hang out longer by blocking some of the things that that the reuptake things that suck it up <laughs> is my professional answer yeah. so so that's a part of so the main thing that ADHDers and um, ADDers it's it's about getting these dopamine hits um, and that's why things such as um, it can be I see a lot in 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 chats and things like that you know there's we're seeking things some are the thrill seekers and so that's where their dopamine hit comes from and and there's different ways that we get that um, and that's why strategies such as um, really communicating to an ADHD kid that they're doing a great job or you know really reinforcing um, through us the adults acknowledging you know their progress or how great they've done and and really shifting it to a positive focus <clears throat> excuse me is so effective because it, you get that dopamine hit yeah. from things like that yeah it's get some operating on that dopamine based system opposed to an adrenaline based system which needs to be that lever that we pull and the priority to to support our children is get them out of that adrenaline exactly. space I love the illustration that um, Tom Hartman paints and on ADHD is like uh, his book um, Surviving as a Hunter in a Farmer's World is yeah. about you know you want to chase the animal to yeah. get that stimulation that pulls exactly. you in that focus the farmer is the one that's going to set their crop and be meticulous and happy to just do the, do the math and wait yes um, and ADHD is probably is the, the hunter remnants going on a hundred percent yeah 100%. and um to switch gears and to um the other side of neurodivergence where um experiencing a lot of now is autism and the autism spectrum so from that standpoint you've obviously um diagnosed as liberated by your diagnosis i like to say um as an adult um but you also went through that experience with your children. Is yes. your experience supporting your children what spiked your interest in this field and set the wheels in motion? No, actually. <laughs> so, so I actually fell into, um, discovered autism, I suppose. This is back when I was at uni in the US, which um, is where I'm originally from. And I was going down, I was studying psychology and I was going down the path um, and needed to do some volunteering. Uh, to to make the application so I could get into the master's program <clears throat> there. And I ended up volunteering at this amazing, innovative preschool that was uh, basically the ratio was 75% children with additional needs to 25% neurotypical children. And it was this amazing... Um, venture to see you know and to show and highlight the benefits of really focusing um, on that because at the time in the US unfortunately it's very segregated <clears throat> the education mm-hmm. system and that's where I first came across working with neurodivergent children and I just fell in love with it and it totally switched my path I actually ended up when I came to Australia um, doing teaching and I got a master's in special ed and I just knew as soon as I as soon as I you know, had experience there. I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I've taught at autism specific schools, um, excuse me, everywhere. And also other, uh, specialist settings from early childhood through to transitioning to adulthood. And I had this, I guess it became a specialty, a bit of a knack for neurodivergent children. And I just seemed to really get them and be able to to understand their communication, in particular the highly sensory kids and those who, um, you know, don't have, you know, are non-speaking. And now I think I understand why. <laughs> um, I I understand them because I'm one of them. And when my children went along this journey, I was, I thought I was prepared. I suppose I, you know, I had an idea of the process. There was no stigma in my mind. I felt like I was pretty well equipped. Um, as best I could to support them. However, the actual going through the diagnostic process, which ugh, it was, it was more heartbreaking than I could imagine. And it had nothing to do with my children. It was the way that the system works and the language that the professionals used. And the fact that as this was going on, my, my perfect little child next to me was hearing these things and I'm trying to, you know, shield them from it. And, and sometimes the doctor's office was too small to exclude them, you know, so they didn't hear things. And, 
and um, and basically that's what led to me creating with my business partner Rebecca Perkins the National Peak Center because we want to change that experience Um, but also that's what led me you know during this process I saw my childhood reflected back at me through my children Mm. yeah yeah Um, and what were the types of things that were being said and hopefully is evidence that we're moving past that now yeah there was everything was really focused on it was very deficit based like what they weren't achieving what they were failing at what the behavior problem was where you know in our house and at that time and even now you know we acknowledge that all children have challenges um you know neurotypical or not you know no one gets through life without challenges it's what helps us grow you know and um builds resilience and everything but just it was so heavily focused on yeah, on just accumulating all the negative, <clears throat> what or what the medical, um, you know, developmental milestones and everything. It was just so negative based, and and I remember a couple of times with my first, I was more with my second. I was more equipped to shield them from that, um, but at times, unfortunately, my first child who went through the process heard things that I wish they hadn't. And, you know, they were asking, why were they asking that about me? Why are they saying these things? And and I could see because I'm blessed in the fact that both my children are um, hyperverbal and, and their their language is has always been um, very developed very early. And that, you know, I was concerned that she was attempting to understand things that I didn't want her to understand because they weren't accurate. And so all of the, the things... Um, I was, you know, trying to manage that then also because of their self-esteem. And, yeah. you know, I didn't want their self-esteem or their self-image to be tainted by by what they were hearing. Yeah, is that a common approach we're seeing in supporting um, <clears throat> is about... And, and, and the, turn of, the corner we've turned is that, okay, we're actually considering them in the process now and, yes. and their voice, even if they don't have a voice, um, prioritising the children in the middle of it. Yeah, definitely. And and I think, you know, I think one of the big things, for example, when when I sat back and thought, you know, how can we make this if, if we're going to create, you know, a place where we're going to be supporting children, how can we make this um, better? One of the things is we never we never talk about the child in front of the child like they're not there. And, you know, if we are going to have these interactions, we bring them to into it, you know, and we want their feedback and their input. And we use language that doesn't dismiss challenges, but that's not soul destroying, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and it really is. It is. It's a slow shift, but it is happening. This shift towards um, acknowledging and starting to really respect and understand that these differences aren't a failing. It's just a difference. And it's helping not only, you know, I, at at the moment or sorry in the past a lot of the onus has been put back on the child so the autistic child or the ADHD kid or the kid with a disability to meet society's norms and expectations where now you know what I know what we're trying to do in in my line of work but also I know a lot of other practitioners are as well um, is really helping you know neurotypical children understand differences but also helping the neurodivergent children understand themselves, understand others, and then trying to bridge that gap between them um, to facilitate, you know, communication and interaction and play and everything. And what's going on for a child? I know there's a there's a spectrum, and that was yeah. my next question. Yeah. But um, for the listeners, like, what is autism? Like, let's start. Let's go simple. Yeah, it's simple, but it's not. Because <laughs> that was the, that's the least simple question. Yeah. No, but it, it is a spectrum, and it's a it's a collection of characteristics that, um, at the moment, you know, the way it's diagnosed is through the um, DSM five TR, I believe, just was released um, a couple of months ago, um, and unfortunately, it does focus on these deficit-based things Um, but basically the differences fall in a few areas including um, differences in communication uh, differences in sensory processing um, so the information coming in uh, differences in 
their their play and their interests and what I call their like their passions you know differences in intensity differences in the way that they um, do those things and yeah basically it's differences in processing and experiencing the world and then their responses to that yeah it is a, it's a hard one. I, like my, my mind boggles when you try to like I try to articulate what it is for myself, and I'm like, yeah, that is a very complex it's... avenue to go down. But you're you're using your the National Peak Centre to support families. Yes. Um, with that, with all different types of therapies that you're offering, you're yep. offering this like very holistic approach. Um, can you like it's quite exciting what you're doing there. Yeah. So can you share with our listeners what what you're doing with um, Peak and the impact it's having. Yes, so basically what we're trying to do at National Peak Centre is, like you said, do like this holistic approach where everyone um, who practices with us or who works for us is what's called a neuro, uses neurodivergent affirming practices Mm -hmm. and works from a strengths-based client-led model, um, not from a deficit-based medicalized model and also that everyone who you know works with us everything that we do is grounded in the lived experience so both myself and my business partner um, were neurodivergent and our children are Um, we actually have multiple therapists who are neurodivergent and neurodivergent parents which is lovely Um, and we have those who are who are not as well and it's really we're trying to create the culture of one where neurodiversity, um, neurodivergencies are celebrated, um, and that it's it's you know here it's it's a bonus if you come in and you tell me you're autistic and ADHD and it's like awesome you're part of us you're one of us you know and and I know yeah that's right it's it's we've um we've had some we've actually it was really it was really sweet at the beginning um when we had a couple of neurodivergent therapists and a couple who weren't the ones who weren't like they take this self-test and they're like oh man i really wanted to be <laughs> like you know creating this culture around that and yeah. and also one that where we support the parents or carers in this as well i think this this is one of the features that makes us unique so we have a um We've created this this role, if you like. It's called a support specialist. And the the role of the support specialist is to kind of keep this overview of the family ecosystem or the support ecosystem of the individual Um, because we do see clients across the lifespan. So let's say, you know, a child comes and they start to CROT. Well, you know, they, they don't live in a bubble. They may be the one with the NDIS plan, but no, you know, there is usually a mom, maybe a mom and a dad and a grandparent or a sibling all in the house. And the support specialist role is just to make sure that everything else is ticking along okay. Because if we're going to support the child, let's say with OT, um, and at home, you know, mom or dad or whoever, grandma is struggling with, you know, getting food on the table, you know, that's going to impact what's happening with the child. And so we need to make sure that they receive the services that they need to be okay so they can support the child with um, with the plan, so to speak, or with the, with the neurodivergency. So, yeah, so we take this very holistic approach um, because anything that benefits their supports benefits the child. And I love the fact that it's the, the extended... For me, I think about when I... I was sent to OT. I went to this, the medical centre, and I did these weird exercises. No one could tell me why, what I was doing, and why I had to do them. Yeah. Um, and then I'd go home, and I'd be like, "Okay, what is, what's that? About? What was that about?" <laughs> and there was like, it, was, it wasn't shared. It was only for reason. It was like, "Hey, do you go do this thing. Come back." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It it is and, nice and to know why you're doing is. something. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but it, it's great to see like that. And what's what's your what's your goal for Peak? What do you want to see it develop into? So we want it to go nationwide. Um, right now, Cranbourne is our first centre, and before the end of the year, we're opening our second centre in the west of Melbourne. Um, and we want it to be nationwide, and we want this our the way we practice to be 
the standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we want to basically shift the expectation away from behaviorist-based approaches. Um, we're, um, this is a bit controversial, but we're anti-ABA. <laughs> so shift away from... Can, can you break that down for us uh, for people that aren't listening? Yes. What's ABA? I'm Sorry? Away Sorry. From yeah. Behavioral management. Yeah. So basically, um, ABA is applied behavior analysis. Um, is the technical term and behaviorist based practices which ABA is uh, is one that focuses on reward and consequences to changing behavior of an individual and there is in the past um, and actually still ABA a lot of the times is touted as the number one if not the only um, intervention for autistic children or children with behavior challenges, as they say. Uh, And the reason I'm so passionate against it is because I, while I was never an ABA practitioner, when, um, before I had my family and and went on this journey, I was using behavior-based practices um, professionally because that was the gold standard, so to speak. Um, And through my journey with my kids and my family, what I was, what I thought I was doing was correct. I was actually uh, causing damage to my children and and, and un- unintentionally induced trauma within them. Um, and in hindsight, now I see things in the past that I've done and and wished that you know I'd had known of other ways, other ways to support the kids that I worked with, um, because there definitely would have been you know trauma as a result of that. What some of those examples of behavioral techniques that you? Mm. So at the most basic, at the most basic things like sticker charts, you know, you, if you do this, you get a sticker. If you get five stickers, you get the prize, right? That as at its very basic is behavior. And then the thing is they, the, the consequence is if they don't do the task or meet the demand, then they don't receive the sticker, which means eventually, you know, it takes away from them experiencing the prize. Now, the thing about that is when we use these extrinsic or, or these, these things that are outside of ourselves, like stickers and rewards, um, to motivate children, what we do is we're doing them a disservice. Um, and we're teaching them um, and they to modify their behavior to do what we want, and then they get this thing in return. Uh, the problem is research shows that with these approaches, Yes, it changes behavior, and depending on certain circumstances, yes, it can change it very quickly, Um, but what it doesn't show is the cost and the toll that these practices take. So it it doesn't allow the children to really tune in to their internal self, um, their internal idea of what is, um, sorry, their internal moral compass about what is right and what is wrong, because it moves it externally and it's all about the thing if it's in relation to challenging or unsafe behaviors um, which is really a sign of distress from the child um, and we really should be looking at addressing why is this child experiencing this level of heightened distress in their nervous system Um, it, it, it doesn't look at any of that it's basically just trying to change what they do it only works when the threat so the person who gives the reward or the consequence which Again, um, we're not allowed to use negative consequences in the education system, but missing out is a negative consequence. Um, You know, it's only effective when that is present. And it's all around motivators and finding a strong enough motivator and things. And the the reality is what I've learned is relationship-based practices are the way to go because they are trauma-informed and there is nothing stronger than a positive, safe, and trusting relationship between you and a child and not only does that support you know support their development but also it, it allows them you know to tune in and develop this internal moral compass and and follow and learn that way yeah and that's where um, my passion lies is in creating those environments where the child can navigate them and yes. set their own goals and set their achievement um, I talk a lot to educators about the, you know, we set up the obstacle course and now everyone does it. Um, or a child's like 
coming up against a bit of a challenge and we jump in and we're like pull with your arms push with your legs yeah. so their fulfillment is based <laughs> on themselves achieving what you've set for them exactly. and they get in this external gratification type of mode where it's like hey yeah. give me the confirmation that I'm good hey give me my achievement opposed to hey they set the goal they might not be able to even like classic ones like climb a tree they might not be able to get up there but if we can support them and say, hey, you can't get there yet, yet. you're going to get yeah. the bigger reward in the end because they're going to set their own goal. That's and right. really internalise, hey, I'm the master of my own surrounding. It is up to me to get joy and fulfilment around my environment, which then in turn sets that intrinsic motivation to explore and experience, overcome sensory processing challenges and then activate their wonderment or their self-value yeah. at the core of who they are. And I love that that power of yet. You know, that's so... When kids get that, it's so powerful, that whole... Um, I always connect it to growth mindset. Um, yeah. And it's so... It's such a powerful, such a it's such a tiny shift sometimes, but that has yeah. such a huge positive difference. And what you were doing there with, like, you know, jumping in and, and even just you modeling you know, how to do it and then supporting by breaking it down so they yeah. can do it, you know, that that modeling and, and that, you know, facilitates that trust in that, you know, you're a safe person to come to. And, yeah. you know, I know, I know at the moment, you know, I'm thinking really little, right? But mm-hmm. if we're taking these, if, if we're using and implementing these strategies now, and really this becomes the child's foundation, as the child grows and pushes into adolescence which is a really risky period for children you know what do all us parents want we want the children to come to us when they're in a risky situation right so doing these strategies now when they're little gets that trust and shows them you know what i can turn to mom or dad when i need support because they've always been there even when things have been tough and and equally I have the capacity to solve this problem for myself. And if I can't, I know who I go to. Exactly. Opposed to, I don't know what I'm doing. Who's the closest people around me that I want approval from? It's my peers. Peers. Yeah. Peers at teens. Exactly. It's going to end up challenging. (laughs) Exactly. And that whole, you know, along along the same path, which... So the reason I talk about what I do is because... I've made all the mistakes connected to what I'm talking about, you know? So, so I used to use these approaches that were very much only reinforcing, for example, with my attention, um, when the kids were doing what I wanted them to do. And that classic, which goes back to behavior stuff, ignoring or not paying attention to undesired, uh, undesired behaviors. Now, again, on this shift from childhood to adolescence, you know, I don't want the pattern to be that my children only see me paying attention to them when they're doing what I want because when they're in those risk-taking situations and they're unable to solve it, I want them to seek me out. So, you know, and that's, again, back to that relationship-based modeling and having this open communication and support um, with them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And equally, having the confidence to let your child fail. Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> it's essential. Right? Yeah, we, we can have them come to us, but essentially you've, you've got to get some dust on the knees. Absolutely. Um, sometimes. And you've got to be um, self-aware and confident enough to dust yourself off, keep going. That's right. Um, and But, you know, I, I love that definition of trauma is it could be perceived as anything that takes away your basic needs. Mm. Yeah. So that, that broadens the scope of, of trauma quite a lot yeah, it does. but equally you need to overcome those that smaller level of trauma you yeah. basically yeah you know, like you know f- falling over and hurting your knee yeah okay you're not in, for a moment there you're not feeling like you're in a safe and secure environment but no but does the action reflect the environment and and it is it suitable for that environment yes so therefore it's going to you're gonna get one of those like little achievement badges. Yeah. Each each time it builds exactly. up the jacket. Exactly. And that and, and that and facilitates that resilience, and and you know through multiple experiences mm. experiences of that, um, 
And I think it's important also for our children to see us fail and to make mistakes and and model how to come back from that through through our interactions with them and with other you know adults in their lives i think that's a really um yeah it's powerful uh, my my daughter's just turned eight so the <laughs> cognitive com- competency of understanding stories and reflections is quite strong and um when we're talking about learnings and me sh- sharing stories i'm like hey uh, <laughs> yeah I'll tell you a time when I failed. Yeah. It was, it was magnificent and it was <laughs> terrible. Um, so it's, it's really opening up that. Um, to shift gears a bit, I'm talking to a lot of um, adults now around neurodivergence. As an adult, like, mm. we, we come from like the 80s and 90s where there wasn't that understanding. We've moved into an era where there is. And then there's, there is more resources as an adult to understand. Um, yep. What's your advice and recommendations for adults um, that think they might be neurodivergent in some way? What's your advice to them? Uh, basically, you know, basically looking to other neurodivergent adults um, mm-hmm. and reading or listening or, you know, seeking out their stories and their journeys and one of the biggest things I think that is a challenge um, I know it was a challenge for me on my journey to fully understanding or getting to that point where I go you know what I need to actually explore this if I am neurodivergent or not and and my my I guess barrier was really around the fact that the masking that I'd done for so long was I didn't even have to think about it. So with masking, I mean, you know, um, suppressing my true self, so to speak, to fit in. Um, and, and a lot of that, you know, goes back to, and I have very early memories of being in prep and watching other kids play and really working hard to copy them and mimic them. So I didn't stand out and this continued through, through school. And I think as I started to read other stories of, um, you know, on social media or books or whatever. One of the ones I turned to um, uh, was the Spectrum Women's Magazine online. Um, obviously, um, coming as a woman, that, that one had a lot of stories that I could relate to. Um, and going, okay, wait a minute, this this is my story. You know, parts of this are my story too. And then really allowing myself to figure out what is my authentic self, mm-hmm. you know, when I let go of the mask. And it's something that um, I'm still doing uh, four years on, but I think I think listening to those who've gone through the journey can be helpful and looking for the lived experience there. And what's your advice for people that think that um, being diagnosed and taking like maybe a medicated route yep. that they're going to lose their power or lose who they are? Well, like, I, also like not yep. just as an adult. So many families going yes. through this this real struggle with medicating their children, and saying, "Well, if I medicate them, is it going to take away from who they are? Um, am I breaking them?" Yeah, no. So, actually, I love I love talking about this. Um, a couple of things. So, when we think in particular about children, but any age, ch- child, teen, adult. You know, if all of a sudden your doctor came to you and said, okay, you've developed diabetes and you now need to take insulin, uh, you wouldn't hesitate. You'd be like, yes, give me the needle. We're going to inject this every day to support my child or to support myself, you know, because I'd like to continue to live, <laughs> that kind of thing. And and when we look at, there's a lot of stigma around medication in particular with ADHD, um, because a lot of them are stimulants and, and, and there is just this really strong stigma. But it's a similar thing in that, you know, the brain, for whatever reason, is either underproducing or it's not hanging out enough. And if our brain is missing it, then there should be no shame in providing it to, you know, to support ourselves to live our best life. And unfortunately, the statistics around um, the lifespan of, um, I know autistic individuals in particular, is not very pretty. Um, and a lot of ADHDers I know, you know, self-medicate in other ways through addiction, through alcohol. I had a period of, of using alcohol um, to cope. 
um, and you know to take the to take the medication I think is is a much much and better also that tendency to be the risk takers that as well, well. Um, so risk takers not just I'm not talking about going to jump out of a plane I'm like no. risk taking in relationships risk taking in um, day to day activities and um, lack of like the stewardship of your life yeah no a hundred percent and I know through through my journey I actually took the medication before I medicated my kids just the way it all played out I had about six months before um, we attempted the medication for my children and so it gave me a good insight I started I think at the beginning I was talking about how my brain did this massive slow down um, and one of the first thoughts I remember having was wow I wish I'd had this sooner and and it was thinking about how much easier certain things in my life would have been um, with that, especially around learning uh, and, and all of that. And then the other, the other thing, so, so just, I guess, so people understand when I started my ADHD meds, I was already on a very low dose um, antidepressant for anxiety because I've always struggled with anxiety. And um, I started the medication, it worked. With, by day three, it was, you know, really kicking in. And um, I noticed an, un, a positive, unexpected side effect was that my anxiety was gone. Um, now, this isn't everybody's story, but this is mine. And I felt like I had this hole in my stomach, like a fist-sized hole. And I realized that's where my anxiety sat in my body. And I spoke to my psychiatrist and I said, you know, should I stop now taking my my antidepressant and he goes no he goes it's working he goes and for some the combination is what in the chemistry is what the brain needs Mm. Um, and I've continued to take it and I've still four years later um, it relieves my anxiety which has been um, a big factor and especially in relation to RSD (laughs) and then contributing to your um, relationship productivity and it's this it's this cumulative snowball effect, isn't it? Exactly. Like you're taking less risk. You're more aware of yourself. Your, your, your concentration is just one tiny aspect of it. Or, exactly. or children with um, autistic children, like sen- there's a lot of focus on sensory processing, but there's yep. just one little component of of the bigger picture. It it is, and and so at the time when I started taking it, we were a family in crisis and had been mm-hmm. for a good four years. Um, nobody could help us. We were, they just kept saying we're a tricky family, which we, we are. Um, and I realized I had to be the one to do it. And the medication, so the diagnosis combined with the medication is what allowed me to get to a place where I was okay and coping and then could put in strategies to then support our family. And now thankfully we are at a crisis. Um, and I know if it wasn't for the medication, that wouldn't have happened. And the diagnosis was the number one best thing I've done for my mental health ever, um, unexpectedly. It's <laughs> brilliant. Um, to change it up, I want to get some advice from you for our listeners. Sure. Um, how do we best support the neurodivergent children in our world? I know it's a big spectrum and all children are different. But what, what's your wonder, one, number one recommendation for interacting and caring for neurodivergent children? Yep. Um, I always think um, starting where the child is at, so connecting with them um, and the way, for example, it, can, it going down, like when you break down um, an interaction or connection, even observing where the child's energy level is at. You know, if they're a child that's quite reserved and quite, quite um, lower energy, come in at that space. So meet them where they're at. Otherwise, you know, if you have very excited energy, you might, you know, they're very sensitive to that. They might scare them and vice versa. If you have a kid that's really like, ah, you know, up here in really high energy, meet them there and match them. And then, you know, focus on um, connecting with them the way they want to and what they enjoy and you know um kind of following their lead uh from there forward and i guess the other big one is respecting their nose um if they have an indication that that something is too much or the uh, interaction needs to end you know respect that um and then you know you can always attempt to reconnect later yeah that's brilliant 
And where can people find out more about your approach, um, the National Peak Centre, your research, books, um, and people that just want to be educated more on the topic? Yeah, so my website is my name, so it's christinakeeble.com, um, and um, I have links to National Peak Centre, and Peak Centre, just so you know, is P-E-K-E, <laughs> um, yeah, so not P-E-A-K, like the mountain, but P-E-K-E Centre, um, we, you know, we're on social media, we're on Facebook, uh, and Instagram and you know I support through talks you know through doing podcasts like this seminars workshops but I also do one-on-one consults for families yeah. carers and adults um, neurodivergent adults themselves and and all of that information um, can be found on my website excellent and we'll put the all the links in the show notes awesome. so people can just click on there get straight there not get distracted on the way <laughs> like this guy would and um, get to where you need to go straight away to wrap up today I just want to commend you on your achievement um, especially from that family standpoint it's easy to get the accolades and you've done an amazing job with that the peak centre um, however to hear you take the step you um, be brave be bold challenged um, get uncomfortable for the sake of your family and demonstrate that it's got to be one of the biggest achievements anyone could be blessed with so well done for overcoming your own challenges and um, thank you for sharing your your wisdom your message and i look forward to um, learning more and on my journey and um, how we can support more children neurodivergent children through play through exploration Thank you, and thank you so much for the opportunity to share and and that you provide this awesome platform to do that. So thank you so much. It's much appreciated. No problem. Thank you.